silencio no diga nada. Si no puede, solo escuche. Si puede, hace un tenor que le diga que comer vivo. Con eso, Paco, que hay perdón. Formaron teclas con su imaginación. Go, 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 go. at a warehouse on the edge of Barcelona. On the loading dock, they smoke cigarettes sprinkled with hash, and they're drinking beer from plastic cups. Inside, a hundred or so people stand toward the stage, nodding thoughtfully to a mashup of hip-hop and acid jazz. They have beards and knit hats and urban scarves. And yes, it was actually like this all the time before COVID. This particular night featured the one-night revival of a long-dormant open mic series from years ago in Barcelona. One of the MCs who used to frequent those nights years and years ago is back on the mic now. It's Matt Goulding, who still calls Barcelona home and is still my partner and co-founder at Roads and Kingdoms. I've had a lot of drinks with Matt over the years. It's kind of the chief economic activity of Roads and Kingdoms. So we had for this pre-COVID episode that we recorded in my rental apartment in the Gothic Quarter, a lot of options. What we ended up drinking, a porron of white wine, and what we ended up talking about, how to be a writer, seemed just about perfect to me. You listeners, especially those who have followed us through this Roads and Kingdoms journey, know more than most that our path has had a lot of bends and turns in it. It's the same with this podcast, which is almost halfway through its own nine lives. This episode in particular marks a signpost, another turning point for me and for this show. I'm going to take a fistful of weeks off for summer, and then I'll be starting back up after Labor Day. And when we return, this show will have a slightly different format. I'll talk more about it when we come back, but the short version is that food and travel and storytelling will be even more at the heart of everything we do. We are also going to have some very, very big announcements that we're going to put out on our socials at Roads and Kingdoms. So keep an eye on at Roads and Kingdoms on Instagram for more. And in the meantime, have a memorable summer of 2021. We will meet you back on this feed on the other side of it all. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms, you are listening to The Trip. Fires my synapses. Yeah.
All right, we so tell me what we have to drink here. Well, that bottle we just popped is called Canestruc, which is uh, a white wine from Catalonia. Actually, the white wine that we drank at our wedding, 2013 in Catechese, you may recall, or damn, maybe not, depending on how hazy those later th- moments get. For I you. didn't think they would have any more bottles left after <laughs> after what happened in Catechese. We hit that vineyard hard. It took them about four or five years to recover, but I'm happy to say that 2018 they have a vintage out again. So <laughs> the, the great wedding crisis of that's right. Uh, well, there were there were crises across Catalonia in the wake of that wedding. <laughs> One of true. them was in the wine region. Um, yeah, man. So this is a good guy uh, poured into the porron. You know that great kind of uh, glass wine receptacle with um, you know that sort of narrow n- narrow nose that you pour in the classic style of the old Spanish working in the fields, whether wet or red or white wine. An easy way to kind of pass it around amongst colleagues in the middle of the day. Uh, wet your whistle and kind of keep going after it. And that was the idea, um, and it's made kind of a hipster movement kind of moment in the U.S., I believe. I'm seeing things like that. It's happening, well, you know, when you got Jose leading the way uh, on Instagram. You That's know, right. His porron skills. That's right. I mean, mostly Jose Andres is to blame in his mercado in New York where they're doing kind of, you know, porron debauchery daily. Um, but here in Barcelona, there's a few... Um, Beacons who have kind of held the light throughout the years, and one of those is La Plata, which you know well. Yeah, this uh, amazing bar where we shot uh, with Bourdain back in the day. Yeah, and it's a little place that just does a handful of things. Pescaito, a little fried fish, a little tomato salad, and a perron of white or red wine. Um, I'm not audacious enough to go with the red Generally speaking, but... Um, that does seem crazy. It does. I mean, I you know, it's just... I mean, it's not a heavy red. They're not They're not dropping some, like, deep oak on you. No, 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 not necessarily. But, um, you know, it's not like, uh, you know, a Barolo packed into that porron, you know, but... Uh, but it's still red. It's got it the still color. still stains. It still brings the... It still brings the uh, oh, brings right. The heat, I so. didn't even think about that. Because we are talking... Ultimately, what we're talking about is drinking wine from a great height, right? It's um, That's the idea, right? And so, you know, of course, it's supposed to be a convenient vessel, uh, especially communal, communally speaking, where you can pass it around amongst friends or colleagues. Um, but more and more, the idea with the porron these days is, you know, to lift it from the greatest possible height with the least amount of effort and the most kind of blasé attitude possible. Um, you know, full extension of the arm, and then you narrow that little entry point with your lips until it all but disappears, and all you have is just a very narrow stream of wine kind of bouncing off of your teeth. Like, that's the ultimate goal here. You're supposed to actually purse your lips. If you want to be a real SOB about it, that's what you do. Damn. You know? Or you can you can do what other guys do, which is, um, you know, you kind of purse your lips, but you leave your teeth clenched as if, like, you're just kind of creating as many obstacles for the wine as possible on its way in. 
but it still gets in because you're a badass and that's why you're doing it. That is now when I do it and, and I did, uh, I was feeling good. I got some nice, uh, some, some nice feedback from you and Pepe I was very impressed. Pepe was very impressed. He actually wrote me about it this morning when he woke up. So <laughs> I've been, been thinking about this all night all long. Night. This guy, wow, your guy came in and really knocked it out of the park. But I have to say, like, part of the secret to my success is that I open my mouth like one of those fucking carp in a, you know, in a plaza uh, water fountain, you know, just as wide as possible. That's right. And that's, that's ultimately what you have to do. It's one is, is open up wide, at least to begin with, and then, you know, tilt your head towards the sky. People try to kind of look directly, almost horizontally into the horizon while pouring wine from a vertical position. Obviously, the, the physics just do not work out that way. So... Um, it's going to be interting talking to you while peroning at the same time, but I'm sure we're going to... We'll take some glug breaks. Um, so when you hear that long silence and just that, yeah, that kind of deep throaty glug, that means one of us is doing it right. Well, ever since Berlin, my microphones now smell like cigarettes, so I'm looking forward to adding, uh, smelling like wine and cigarettes to them. That is, oh, that's what I'm smelling. Nice. Uh, nice yeah. Nice. Well, I'm going to go in for the first round. You can just keep talking. <laughs> I mean... Dude, now you're just showing off. You were like, you were doing like a, you know, like a ventriloquist dummy, like tooth snapping <laughs> just to keep the wine off its axis, oh, you know, man. that was impressive. Well, thank you, my friend. Uh, well, damn, man, it's good to be here in Barcelona talking to you on the trip. Unbelievable. Yeah. This is why, this is where it started. This is why we do it. I'm now going to, having said that I was excellent yesterday, something terrible is going to well, happen here. I will tell the listeners exactly what's happening. Full extension. He's looking at a, like a good foot and a half of extension. And there he drops spilled. One small one rolling down his cheek. It was probably just a tear of his own satisfaction from that very fine porron pour. Um... Well done. Let me give you the real version. I think I just turned this thing into a fucking neti pot. <laughs> like, maybe it's the nostril on the other side of you, but I definitely got wine up the nose. Kids, I'm a professional uh, drinks podcaster, and I couldn't even nail that. It's hard. Speaking of this podcast, Daisy D, our intrepid illustrator and all-around super rad person to get a fade on with, she and I went to the Mercado with my kids who wanted to be doing the porron right. with us. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there we are in the middle of the Mercado, much to the, you know, kind of uh, amaze and, and uh, you know, probably shock of <laughs> people around us teaching the kids how to porron, you know, wow. like what the right, you know, what the, what the right angle is, how to do it. It's, it is the most fun way to drink fucking anything. Um, How'd that go over in America? I mean, in New York, they did, they did not call child protective services, so I guess we we got out of there all right. I mean, you know, it's it's like it, it the reaction of children to it, I think, is a reaction uh, that adults have too. It's like, you know, drinking's great, but why not make it fun? Do it from a height, spill it on yourself. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, listen, I've got a five week old baby, baby Diego. Who, um, you know, because every Saturday I hold my office hours there at La Plata at 12.30 and a porron of white wine. And now Baby D's got a little porron of mother's milk, basically. <laughs> and he's practicing and he's, he's into it already. So 
Yeah, the gamification of drinking is never a bad thing. You have? Do they give kids like little milk porrons? They should. Pepe's made an exception for us. So, <laughs> Uncle Tio Pepe. In 2017, CNN gave us a smallish bucket of cash and asked us to film a short-form video series with Anthony Bourdain. The series that came out of that, Return to Catalonia, was built on the talents of director Kate Kunith and also on a very specific skill set that Matt Goulding has. He is one of the finest moment-for-moment tour guides I've ever met. He's never actually toured anyone around professionally. It's just an odd tick of his. The way he makes mental lists of the right corner to turn at the right moment in the right time of day with just the right amount of food and booze in your belly to make you fall madly in love with the place. I have seen him do it in Japan, in rural North Carolina, and over and over again in Barcelona, where a morning walk for coffee becomes something of a Rube Goldberg itinerary each step connecting to something new and unexpected on your path. I asked him why he has this obsession with showing the city off in his particular way. And listen, my my main mission whenever you're in town is to make you feel as horrible as possible about living where you do. And so accomplished. (laughs) And so he really... the banner. That means conjuring up every angle of light at the right moment to really hit you in ways that Barcelona can hit someone like you passing through town, but... I do appreciate you also calling off the pickpockets and the uh, the petty criminals that uh, would usually be harassing me like uh, sandflies. We called the truce for the day, so they stayed away. But yeah, I mean, listen, I've I've been in the city now for almost ten years. Um, obviously, feel deeply connected to it. It's um, it's a very funny place because you know if you come here in June, it's an entirely different city than if you come here in January, which is to say especially in the old city, the Ciutat Vella, where we live. We're in the Gothic Quarter right now. Um, it's very easy to feel like the city is no longer your own. In my case, uh, as an insider-outsider, it's never been quite my own, but I certainly feel a lot of connection to the city. Obviously, my wife is from here. And so when people come here, I'm just it's all about trying to crack those little bones in the right way, like chiropractic style, to like give you the best feelings the city has to offer. Um, and depending on the season, that can mean what we did yesterday, which is hiking up to Montjuic, which is where the Olympic Games were held. Expansive views of the Mediterranean. You get you sort of a full appreciation for the shape of the city and the mountains that surround it and distant views of the Sagrada Familia as it kind of uh, trudges along in its way towards completion. Um, and then you pour down the mountain and suddenly you're right there in the Mediterranean. Uh, Ten minutes later, you're you can have your toes in the water. Um, in between the mountain and the Mediterranean, there's graph cats throwing up like crazy sick street art. You know, there's all kinds of swindlers and hustlers and um, swarms of seagulls and little tapas bars and all that kind of life that like really connects the city and makes it, whether January or June, a really vibrant place to live. So, you know, the mission to make you feel a little bit of FOMO when you're back in New York, it's pretty easy in a moment like this. There's, there's filthy FOMO, man. We, we used to have an office uh, that you would work out of, especially in the, in the Bourne here, and I was just kind of walking around. It's this beautiful old building on the corner of this kind of revitalized square uh, down there. And it's just, you know... Uh, it's just a very different commute. I know you and I have talked sometimes. We've been on Skype or whatever the you know least horrible uh, communication option is of the, right. <laughs> of the month. And you know, 
sort of comparing uh, commutes, um, and you're just absolutely a fucker about. It's one of my most smug is when we compare commutes. Thinking about you riding uh, all the way down the Upper West Side, you know, across the river into oh, Brooklyn. You mean the trains? The two to the N to the F doesn't like call out to you as you like skate you know, down uh, millennia's old streets. Uh, yeah, when I'm passing that old Roman wall, crumbling in its, you know, 2,000th year on Earth, and, you know, duck into a little bodega for a quick vermouth, and then I pass through the Mercat del Born, where they've preserved the ruins of one of the city's first markets, you know, in this perfect context. Take a break and go over the Citodea Park, you know, maybe just crush a jamón bocadillo, um, yeah, I think about you a lot in those moments, quite frankly, <laughs> and it, it feels good. It feels good to think about you right then. We were talking about this with like parenting styles and watching other couples. It's like, you know, nothing makes, uh, you know, the, the decisions in your life feel so sweet as when you see other people making worse ones, you know, and my decision to uh, live with the subway rats for, you know, uh, two hours a day for much of the last five years. You know, I think it just makes that sweet, gauzy sunset you catch over the Gothic Quarter probably feel a little bit better. It probably does. I mean, listen, I love I love New York. Obviously, I met you in New York. I lived there for, for many years, and um, there's no place like it in the world. It has a very special place in my heart. Um, but one of the things that, that really worked for me very early on in Barcelona, even before I was committed to kind of living here for the long run, was just the ability to kind of tune out a lot of the noise, you know, the, the feeling that, well, one, I can wake up six hours ahead of you guys and actually write and get after the page. And by the time it's 2 p.m. and you guys are kind of stirring, hopefully I've got a thousand words down and I'm sitting down to that jamón bocadillo. Um, you know, that's from a timing standpoint, it works out beautifully. But also just the, the feeling that I don't, need to be as plugged in as sort of uh, clock aware as sort of constantly feeling like I need to be somewhere and I'm constantly behind schedule which is a feeling I get a lot when I'm in the states in particular in New York huh um, so it, that's not just me it's just that low level but you know omnipresent level of anxiety that's that's tough you know and like I Wanted, I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to divorce myself from that. And I'm sure there's, there's iterations of that here in Barcelona for sure, but it, it feels so small in comparison as to be almost non-existent. Mm. Well, that didn't help me at all. Is that what we're doing? Am I trying to help you? <laughs> Am I helping you or are you interviewing me? What is the... Uh, it's the this? Matt Goulding uh, therapy for Nathan Hour. Sweet. Um, it's been a long weekend, just so the listeners know this. <laughs> He's been, been hearing a, my bullshit. It's been a long weekend. And, you know, <laughs> we're like, if we don't do this now, it's probably never going to happen. That, so is, that is true. Because we, we, we've, been, we've been drinking and uh, sort of uh, therapizing for, uh, for a good 48 hours straight. We, it's what we do best. This is, this is certain. Um, but that's, yeah, I mean, I, I guess, I, you know, I think about obviously you in terms of, uh, food in this town and, and that's obviously a, a gotta be a big draw, but actually, you know, the, the writer's life, if I can use what's probably a trademarked, uh, term, 
is also one of the one of the great things about being here. So where where do you write? How do you how do you write? How did you get into that rhythm? And how important is this place to it? Um, yeah, man, great question. I mean, I think I originally thought that I was going to write in this R and K office next to the 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 Born Market, as you described earlier. And it is a beautiful office, and I loved my six-minute stroll through old Barcelona <laughs> to this office. And did you just pour that entire porron up your nose? Uh, I'm sorry. I just <laughs> this is a ridiculous thing to drink during an interview because usually, you know, even we're talking about drinking, so usually, but I'm still just trying to sip, you know, and maintain <laughs> eye contact and do like sort of polite human things while someone's telling me a great anecdote or answering a question I just asked them. The porron is like... <laughs> I mean, to be on, to be fair here, just so everyone knows, I gave Nathan the option today, I can make a gin and tonic, which is sort of the default cocktail of, of Spain. Uh, serve a glass of vermouth, which is a big kind of culture on Sunday afternoons, a glass of sweet vermouth, or a porron, which is like <laughs> drinking a beer bong. And uh, guess what your revered host chose? I, I did. I, I mean, I think that it just felt like the most disrespectful thing I've maybe ever done uh, <clears throat> on, on the mic here to just, as soon as you start your answer, to pick up a porron and start. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I'm trying right. to drop a stream of white wine from three feet above. Oh man, it is really not. It's it's much less conversational. Uh, excuse me, much less conversational than I thought. It's shocking, <laughs> but hilarious. And you're right. I did. I made my bed. I have to. I have to go spill wine in it. Um, That's right. Well, I mean, listen. Uh, are you done with the baron for the second so I can actually answer this question? <laughs> yes. Yeah, so let's get back to what I, I something I actually am very interested in hearing about. Uh, whatever it may seem like. Right. So, I mean, you know, the idea of walking down the street to this beautiful neighborhood to an, an incredibly quiet and lovely office with a nice view as a writer, it just seems that's why you come to Europe, right? This is it. And I couldn't, couldn't paint it better. Um, and the truth is I never wrote a meaningful word in that office in six or seven years of, of taking up a desk there. Something about the the mixture of like how quiet it was and how nice the views were and like everything just seemed to be sabotaging me in ways that, you know, a, a too perfect writing desk can be almost restricting. I don't that's know. That's amazing, yeah. From my from my standpoint, that's that's kinda how it works. And so I found over the years that I need to be around white noise, sort of that kind of environmental noise that's very easy to find in this city. Um and at least for the longest time, nobody, there was no culture of working in bars or cafes here. You know, it just, you didn't see people kind of those Mac warriors heading out in, in droves to kind of take over the first place with decent Wi-Fi or whatever. And, and in fact, the place I found was a place called Satan's Coffee, Coffee Shop in the middle of the Gothic Quarter, uh, run by my buddy Marcos, really good guy who loved to kind of mess with the customers by saying basically... Absolutely no Wi-Fi, no decaf, no kids, no fun, no anything. You know that was kind of his his trademark, and um, I apologized to him very early on when I barely knew him, and just said, "Listen, I'm sorry. Um, this is like a total buzzkill for you and the clientele here. Like, I can take my dumb laptop somewhere else." And I think he thought about it for a while and was like, "Yeah, I kind of want you to, but let's just see how this thing plays out." And um, you know, I ended up writing basically all three of the books that we published with Tony. You know, rice noodle fish and grape olive pig and pasta pane vino um, on one stool in one corner of Satan's coffee shop there in the middle of the Gothic Quarter. 
That's um, such a trip. So you almost needed that conflict that that always the like I'm 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 I shouldn't maybe be here. You know, like just to, obviously you worked it out with him, but that little freeze on of right. like tension. That's it. Because actually what it is, is when you kind of feel like people don't want you where you are, you're like, if I'm going to actually be here, I better be getting things done. Because this would be doubly egregious if I was the one guy in here with the laptop, like just like surfing the net or just doing something really dumb. And, um, and so that really motivated me. And so I could sit down there for like an hour and a half or two hours and be ultra focus and like just blast out a 1500 word chapter you know um and that worked like that time and time again one stool one corner facing this sort of like graphed out wall in this narrow streets of the gothic quarter and then marcos got bored by just like the non-stop stream of clientele that people were very happy with this place and that made him uncomfortable and so he's just like screw it i'm gonna just turn this place upside down and he's done that two or three times over the years and it has destroyed my productivity in the most terrible way why because the stools are gone tables have been made into these kind of awkward shapes um there's no longer outward facing chairs and you know like just the it's a very sensitive thing you know this you're a fantastic writer even though he doesn't like to actually do it (laughs) on the shelf your host here is you know one of the sharpest pens i know but um you also know how fragile um that idea of the right moment in time to to write something well yeah it sucks and i you know there are these people out there uh i think priya krishna is like we've talked about on this podcast before is i sort of have this you know uh fascination with her just insistence that you know it's the work i just get it done you know she's so organized i i still within me can never find anything less emotional than like a thousand percent like mood based energy level confidence level like all of these things are kind of floating around and intersect and and if any of them are off kilter like right things just kind of now obviously you know you have a wide window of possibility because you put out a lot of as you call them meaningful words in these three books, in this one position. I don't uh, know if I called them meaningful, though. Don't put me on the spot like that. No, you said you, words. you didn't write meaningful okay. words in the office. Okay. Okay. They're deeply meaningful words. Uh, and I, uh, yeah, I mean, fucking three great books in a workmanlike fashion. You hmm. you turn them out very fucking quickly. So, um, Right. I mean, I think that the, the thing that guides most of us, I mean, we're all, by nature, writers in particular, procrastinators. You know, it's like... We all know that if you want to have a beautifully clean apartment, just have a deadline because that means you're going to be cleaning out your kitchen and the cabinets and the closets and all those things that you can do before you actually sit down and do what you're supposed to be doing, which is writing that 1,800-word article that you got to turn in by tomorrow morning. Um, but that doesn't really work on the long-term scale. If you're trying to write books and you're trying to pace out the writing of a book and, you know... Nor, of course, does that idea that like somehow like inspiration and passion are going to just drive you through like an 80,000 word slog. It's not. It's just discipline and realizing that like every day you've just got to produce to a certain level. And if you don't, then you shouldn't be doing this essentially. Or you write one book every 20 years and like yeah. that's totally awesome too. Don't get me wrong. That's that's the way a lot of people do it. Um, not not, to, not to, to portray this as some kind of mechanical operation, but... But if you want to be publishing things at that frequency, like you kind of have to, to look at it that way. Introducing Bluehost Cloud. 
ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. One of my favorite parts of being the guy who edited those three books that we did with Bourdain and Harper Collins was watching copy fly between Matt and Tony. Each book had an intro that was basically an email dialogue between the two of them. Matt would send something over the wall, and within a very short amount of time, like a half hour, Tony would throw his response back, often having typed it out on his iPad. And it was something else. The punctuation was shit, grammar sometimes too, but every paragraph that Tony sent back felt like it had at least one or two blistering turns of phase, some sort of savage sentence that just stops the eye cold. It was masterclass writing between the both of them, and Though the relationship that we all had at Roads and Kingdoms had a lot of goals and a lot of aspects, it was writing originally and till the end that kind of linked all three of us together. Writing can do all of that. It can do anything. All right, back to how Matt gets it done. Do you do you write out of, are you like more motivated by fear or joy? Uh, wow. Um, I would say it's a healthy mixture of the two. For sure. I mean, I'm, the fear is essentially that like I'm not advancing and not getting better. And if I'm stagnant or if I'm just plateauing and I'm 38 years old, then what the hell am I doing on this rock? That's always a persistent, low-level, but very present fear that I'm entertaining and sort of metabolizing. That's dark. Yeah, I mean, listen, I mean, but <laughs> we all have some version of that, I suppose, uh, especially in a business as narcissistic as, you know, writing right uh, well and it's wrapped up in like who you are and totally yeah. i mean it's you cannot possibly separate that for a second even if you you know you write in the third person and you're distanced from your work like it's all our view of the world that we're um you know proposing to the world in ways that we feel are meaningful or are necessary and god knows if either of those things are words that i would use to describe what i write but nevertheless i do it um the joy, yeah, without a doubt is, you know, I think the joy, for most people, the joy starts, of course, and starts and possibly stops on the reporting side, um, especially if you're writing a, a work of nonfiction, you know, the joy is having the opportunity to go out to Japan and spend six months from Hokkaido to Kyushu, poking around, looking under pots, asking people questions, and above all, just sort of absorbing people's stories, like that is, of course, the purest form of joy I think that you could have as as a writer in the food or travel or cultural space. Um, 
And I think for most people, it kind of stops there. I don't want to speak for you, but I know that you probably get a little bit less joy out of the process. Why do you think I run a fucking podcast? It's, <laughs> right. it's all interview, no writing. Right, it's, right. Uh, I mean, it's and, remarkable. I'm just and I've, getting the buttermilk, the, the fucking colostrum of the experience alone. <laughs> well, I mean, listen, we've, we've been doing R&K now for eight years Going on nine, almost, maybe, you know, so, um, and obviously, uh, so much of those early days were just me editing you, and you editing me, and every day waking up and saying, hey, it's your turn, what are you going to write about, um, and it was very clear early on, like, how both of us felt about that process, Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think one of the things I love most about sort of my experience with RNK and sort of the freedom that we try to give ourselves and we try to give to other reporters out there when it came to, you know, filing copy and just writing about the world that we saw was that it gave me a lot of confidence in the actual process. Um, you know, a lot of joy actually came out of the writing itself, which I didn't really feel before I came to RNK. I mean, I'd written a lot of, I'd written books and done a lot of things specifically in the food and nutrition space and all of that. But there was very few moments where like you finish a paragraph and you just feel satisfied by that. You know, everyone feels satisfied when they, when they hit send on a piece of copy and it's out or they see their name, you know, on, on a byline in a magazine. Like, that's great. Like, that's the high that we're all kind of chasing. But it's less sustainable to me than the high of one great sentence. Mm. And um, that's something that I've really discovered in the last eight or nine years, and especially knowing that I've got this knucklehead beside me on the editing chair who's going to go through this copy and make it better. Yeah, dubious claim. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> no, man. no, I mean, it's, it is, it, it was actually my next question uh, for you, but uh, let's take a porron break so we can drink without... Sorry, um, that one got away from me. No. Just dramatic effect for the listeners there so they can understand what's actually happening here. Yeah, they understand what's actually happening. Somewhere in Spain, uh, this, the great writer Matt Goulding is gargling wine, is that? That's, that's it. I mean, it's not the technical term here. We say, we like to say we're washing our throats. Is that a sound you're supposed to make? <laughs> no, definitely Jesus. not. It's I, I'm not the sure last I, sound you want to put out there. I, I already shoved some wine up my nostril. I'm not sure I'm ready to start gargling with this stuff. Oh, let's see. Let's see what you got here. Look at that extension. A full extension. I would say his arm is perfectly straight right now. A little pursing of the lips, a small drizzle, a couple of drops, but pretty solid. Just a little wetting of the chest. No padron in the nose. I think you stayed nose free. Uh, wow. All Hold right. On. We're getting somewhere now. The question I was going to ask you is how, you know, where does editing come into the process for you after you write something? Because, you know, you say I was editing books, but it's like, you know, it's, it's more cheerleading by the time you've sent the stuff over. It's not like you don't send shit across the, you know, across the wall with, with, you know, deep problems. Every once in a while, you're like, you would have a question or ask for a preference or something. But like, what percentage of your time is going back over the things that you write? Right. I have a horrible process. I think that's like a terribly unhealthy way to write, which I think is entirely enabled by the medium of, you know, being able to use computers in the way that we do now. So that maybe I'll write the lead. Like I'll start with a sentence or two that kind of just know where this whole story starts with, you know, they used to be like very like scene based and maybe a quote. And that was kind of always the way I thought was like easiest to pull someone into a story. 
but then over the years I've kind of moved away from that and just try to find like something a little bit broader, something a little bit more sort of far spanning. But regardless, like coming down with that first idea that you feel like it's going to hook someone in. And then at that point, like you have this jumble of ideas in your head that you've already been stewing on during the reporting process that you've already been thinking about because these are things that you think about. That's why you're, you're taking on the task of trying to put them down into words. And for me, it never follows in a linear fashion. Like I've never written a story, certainly not a book, from A to Z. It's like from A to R to M to Q to Z to B. And it's, you know, it's a... It's a and I, you're I, talking about like splitting different scenes up. I mean, the books were all kind of geographically organized. So you would write a little bit from... The fucking Piedmont, a little bit right, from Rome. Right. So if I'm writing a story about Paella, you know, it was a big chapter about Paella in the Spain book, and the lead was something like you can trace the history of 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 Spain through the perimeters of a Paella pan, and you know, it breaks down the different elements: the rice coming from you know the Moorish influence, the olive oil coming from the Roman Empire, the saffron, like kind of going through these individual ingredients. But I would barely finish that first paragraph before I would be on like the 20th paragraph writing a scene about an individual payero, an individual like paella master as he was teaching me something about forming the the socarrat, the crispy bottom of the paella, you know, that forms on every good paella pan. And it's something about, I think, our our dis- culture of distraction, I think for me personally, where um, it's harder for me to, to dedicate one sentence after the next in one clean, linear fashion Versus finding those best nuggets of wisdom and those best combinations of words and syllables and kind of vomiting them out wherever they may fall and leaving blank spaces between them and then working my way back to slowly stitch them together. What's the hardest part like of that process for you to like get into? Is it is it to realize that you have a small blank space from a totally different time? It's two things. I think one is like the hardest part, you know, initially is like realizing that you have to be super sharp with transitions because you've just created these little islands of words and ideas and they've got to fit together in a you know in a way that feels entirely natural as if they just came out in one single thought um that one is that one is really tough and the other part about it is i think that i personally leave the hardest decisions for last i mean a lot of writers do this but usually you you come to a crossroads and you know that this next sentence this next paragraph has to address address this very large nuanced idea and you're choosing, do I choose a metaphor here? Do I go directly at it? Am I using someone's quote? And you kind of leave those things on the side because I'm not ready to, to tussle with them. Mm-hmm. And it's a kind of a lazy way of sort of pushing things off until the end. So what I end up with is a story that's 90% written in terms of the quantity of words, but 80% of the actual muscle is still there for me to, to kind of wrestle with. That's a trip. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I've heard that from you a number of times. You're like, I've got 5,000 of these 5,500 words or whatever. But <laughs> but like, but you're like, I'm still very far from done here. Right. I could write those first 5,000 words in like two days and those last 500 words in a week. Yeah. Um, and I, I've always, I've been beating myself up about this forever because I just feel like there must be something lost in the, lost in translation. Even if the, the story comes together, even if I pass it off to you and you cheerlead and you know we throw some high fives and you give me some very smart suggestions and that's it like it's hard not to feel like 
um, thinking of the writers of yore when they sat down with, you know, a, a loose leaf of paper and a quill and just like attacked it from start to finish or a typewriter that like there was more cogent, like singular direction in their writing than would be in the writing of somebody who is using a MacBook as if it were just some wide open map for you to travel the world with. You know Chekhov had like many tabs open at once, you know? <laughs> 17 tabs. Just, uh, oh, just, man. Just, just, they just happen to be uh, paper tabs. Um, I, you know, it's fine. I'm probably reading into this, but I, I do think that actually adds, it creates your style. Like you may think it's a, uh, a bug, but it's actually a feature, you know? And I was, it was funny cause we were going through, uh, the Beirut episode and Chino, and then you sent me some battle rappers to listen to. And as, as always happens when you send me something like that, then like five hours later, I'm still like <laughs> watching it. And, and it, and there is something about the, um, the, like the primacy of a fucking savage sentence, you know, right. in that they kind of, that it can float you know, it's the tide that lifts an entire chapter or something. And right. I've always felt like your writing was kind of, was like that. So you th may feel like it's disconnected or something, but for me, it feels like you, you have a really special focus on the great fucking sentence on that really filthy, good, uh, turn of phrase. <laughs> right. And then somehow, and, it, and so it's interesting to hear you say, which I'm not sure I've ever heard from you really express that way, but that, that you essentially are kind of putting your, your, you know, your best lines. It, it, it feels like that. And, you know, and I think there's obviously an inherent danger, especially if, you know, you go through, I was a creative writing major at UCLA and, you know, you always hear this, like, kill your babies. Don't be too protective of individual turns of phrase or individual ideas. Like you always got to be willing to work in the greater service of the story by being efficient, by being really clear eyed about the words you put down. And so in some ways that really flies in the face of that idea um, you know, and I, my first job, my first real editing job, um, you know, kind of coming out of a few little freelance jobs when I was in my early twenties was being, I was an editor at men's health and it's a magazine that's entirely focused on service where every sentence, every paragraph has to be in, be constructed in a way that could conceivably improve the life of the reader. And the second that you veer from that path for some kind of stylistic flourish, it's just pure ego that's getting in the way. And, you know, I worked with a lot of really smart service editors who would just absolutely tattoo my copy. I mean, just blistering edits that were really tough to get over. Um, I can imagine a lot of, a lot of shit would get uh, left on the floor at that show. <laughs> Most of my pros, brother. But, uh, but, you, but you learn about the economy of words and, you know, how to be extra efficient, how to say a lot with a little. You, you learn all those things. But the other job that I had had just before that, which, you know, um, where I was an intern at Harper's Magazine, and it was, you know, this sort of august literary magazine, the oldest continuously run magazine in the U.S., and um, Lewis Lapham, who was sort of a legendary editor of, of Harper's, was on his way out, but I had the chance to kind of transcribe his work. He, he always dictated all of his work in this old sort of recording machine, and one of the interns would be lucky every week to be tapped to dictate Lewis Lapham's um, editor's note for every issue. Huh. And what you listened to, what you heard on these tapes was just a stylist, just working out the cadence and the rhythm of language. Yes, he was saying big things, uh, particularly in these years, talking about the Bush administration and the, you know, the erosion of American ideals and things that we're talking about in these days as well. 
Um, but I, I remember reading his uh, "The Agony of Mammon." Oh my God! I that, mean, that just, rocked me, man. Just fiery prose, but really, the fire for Lewis was in the way those syllables fell, in the way that those words were arranged. That that arrangement of certain sounds, um, even if the actual idea behind it is exactly the same, hits us in an entirely different way. So he's talking into a tape, and he's like, you know, the uh, the pain of the pain of money. He's like, no, no, okay, no, wait, no, no. no. The agony of money. No, okay, no, no, the agony of mammon. Like, that's yeah, how right. a sentence would come totally. together? It would, I mean, listen, he was a little bit cleaner than that in the sense that, like, I think he'd worked through some of these ideas in his head, but there would definitely be moments in these recordings that would be him stopping, going back, and it really was just sort of working out, like, when to use alliteration, you know, when to, you know, kind of swing for the fences, you know, that short, long combination of sentences that ultimately form rhythm, and... And so it was the exact opposite view of what I, you know, what I was going to go on to see at Men's Health. And there was an editor um, at Harper's at the time. I think his name was Ben Metcalf, uh, also an incredible writer and a legendary editor. And you know, I was lucky to have a couple evenings out and having some martinis with him or whatever. And he just said, "Listen, like, you know, all writing needs to do one of two things: it either needs to tell you new information, or needs to be beautiful." And only the best writing does both. Um, and it seems pretty self-evident, but when you think about it that way, like, it really hits home. And so when you sit down to write something, you're either going for one or the other, or you're going for both. And I feel like, you know, to give ourselves all a shot at something that's approaching greatness, we got to be going for both. How, how many, uh, how quickly did you make enemies at Men's Health when you walked in with that quote? Oh my God. <laughs> I was, they were just like, forget everything you heard from those pretentious assholes on Fifth Avenue or actually we're on Broadway. Right. This is the working class fucking ab magazine of Emmaus, This was it. I mean, they had, a, they had to deprogram me. That's, that's um, amazing. But, you know, and then I left, you know, I left Men's Health and I kind of reprogrammed myself to find some fusion thereof of, a little bit of that service efficiency and hopefully some of that that stylist sort of beauty that guys like Lewis really um, embodied in all of his work, you know, and I think somewhere in there, especially with, I think, with the, the books that we've done over the years, you and me and Bourdain and our partner, Doug, try to find that. Like, you're giving someone something to learn along the way, but it's always got to be packaged in, you know, in the type of sentences and types of paragraphs that just make you want to keep reading. Of course, that's the goal. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Okay, so it might be a stretch to rope Lewis Lapham, the waspy blue blood of letters, to hip-hop and the writing process. But let me tell you, as a magazine writer turned podcaster of sorts, you should also be speaking your sentences the way that Lewis did, always. I don't know who that wouldn't help. You will hear yourself in all sorts of new ways, and more importantly, you'll understand those words and what they'll sound like to others. You know, of course, that rappers are writers at heart, but I'm here to tell you that all writers are MCs too, whether they know it or not. Here's what Matt had to say to that idea. 
that's it. I mean, it's a, I mean, it's funny you bring that up because you know you, Nathan came in on Friday night and uh, we went right out to a to a big old hip hop jam session here in Barcelona, um, organized by my my great buddy Adriano, whose band Seward had just turned ten, and they were doing ten different shows in ten different locations across ten days in Barcelona. Like ten consecutive days. Ten consecutive cause, days. Because they're heavy, fucking crazy. Heavy hauled, man. But these guys are ballers, and so. The day that you came in was was this hip hop jam session, which was sort of hearkening back to um, a period of time in Barcelona where they used to run every Monday a session called "What the Fuck Jam Session," and it was three or four hours of improvised music, jazz musicians, hip hop artists, poets, um, open mic style, and a place called Jamboree here in the middle of the Gothic Quarter in Plaza Real. And I had gone there back in 2002 when I was a university student here and had braved the microphone a number of times. Um, to get up there in front of this sort of mixed Spanish Catalan international crowd and and try to rep, you know, I had a very short-lived career, not even a career, sort of fascination as a, as an MC. Um, back in California. Back in California, largely at UCLA, and some years after that, and you know, the irony was I was a horrible writer of rhymes. I actually sat down to write a rhyme. It was invariably just like overwrought and just reaching and kind of silly and like trying to embed these like crazy rhyme patterns and everything but if i freestyled like things were actually kind of cool that's uh, crazy only you could only do it on the improvised it was level. i mean and the truth is like if you recorded a song that i had written and you recorded a song that was freestyle you would almost always choose the freestyle version even though it took me one one hundredth of the time i did i remember i tried to rap uh rhyme um can't even use right I tried to write some rap rhymes. Uh, no, I tried to write for uh, for Jose Gonzalez, who yeah. was the leading our band when when we were out in San Francisco, and and he just you know it was it was crazy. He and I both looked at this and we just like, wow, this really feels written. Right, right, <laughs> you know? totally, totally. It was not that, that was not what we were going for. Yeah, that was my thing. I felt so heavily manipulated, so like intentionally writerly. You know, it was like. I don't know, the purple prose of hip hop or something like that. It was just, it was rough. But um, what I loved about that, you know, and I left that behind besides sort of like little you know, personal freestyle sessions that I still do at the end of the day, if I you know, need to get something out or if I'm walking through the streets and I got a beat on or whatever. But um, the beauty of it was, was exactly that. It was that it, it exposes you to the importance of rhythm and cadence and that transfers over so immediately and so consistently into writing. And so, yes, you're always, always reading things out in your head. Obviously, writers do this. Um, I would say to any aspiring writer, like, do it out loud. Do it in front of a mirror. Do it in front of your girlfriend. Do it in front of your peers. Whatever it is. Because you will always hear the false note. And the false note might not be a bad word. It may just be the way that that word falls in the context of a larger sentence. Um, I really believe that personally, you know, and I think there's a lot of, you know, a lot of writing schools that tell you to always get rid of anything that's excess, that words and the sentences should be stripped down to their bare essentials about, you know, whether it's like the kind of lean muscular prose of Hemingway or, or the lean muscular prose of men's health. And I personally don't believe that. I actually believe that, Every once in a while, you need to tell, you need to get a, an idea across with the right combination of words that may actually have an extra couple syllables, but those ones, the way that they fall and the way that they hit and the way that they sound in the mind of the reader actually gets across the point even more potently. 
I really believe that. It was funny. There was certainly uh, times, even yesterday while we were walking or just talking to you, where I, you know, I can't quite tell if you've lapsed into freestyle, <laughs> you know, because like some sentences will just come out and they, they have this like kind of like overt rhythm to them. And I always think about that in your writing is like, yeah, there's like, I mean, what the, whatever the, you know, the brief rap career you had, it obviously is living on, not just because you can hop up on stage 17 years after your first what the fuck appearance, <laughs> but also like this is, this is what the writing does. But, we, but you're super into Hemingway. Yeah, I love Hemingway. Don't get me wrong. I Just, love. Is I it love... more of a, a life? Like I want to. I want to live like him rather than want to sound like him. I think it's probably largely that. Of course, I. You know, like every like over testosterone eighteen year old wannabe writer, I poured over his pages and his biographies and fell in love with everything that, at least I originally had consumed from him. Um, but that sparse sort of taught prose is not me. Like, it's just not. And I definitely tried my best sort of imitation of Hemingway early on, and it was horrible. Yeah. And my creative writing teachers at UCLA hammer me for And they're just like, what are you even trying to do? Are you sure you chose the right major here? And then it wasn't until... What a fucker. I know, seriously, but it was... I mean, it was an amazing writer, Carolyn C., a legendary California novelist who passed away recently, an amazing woman and taught me a lot about about writing but the most important thing that ever happened was that you know after all these tortured short stories where i was trying to imitate one writer or another one which we're all doing i think when we start out um i finally just wrote a story about food about you know a thanksgiving meal that had kind of you know spontaneously come together in my last year in college and it was a fictionalized version of this meal and she pulled me aside after class and she was like from now on just write about food just do that um, and that was, you know, the best piece of advice I got, you know, of course I took that as sort of a grain of salt because I always thought, okay, food is, you know, this very narrow little niche and it's not literary enough. It's not important enough. Um, even though I, you know, part of my whole thing has always been, it is that important and it's this, you know, very you know, necessary cultural staple and, and all that. But in the back of my mind, I always thought I'm going to get, eventually I'm going to get away from food and get back to the real writing. You know, the real writing. That was something I had in, my, in the back of my mind as if most of the stuff was just sort of, you know, catnip right. to, to make a living or whatever like that. And, of course, that's totally bogus. And, you know, along the way, what I've found is what other people in this particular genre of writing has found is that food just grows and grows and grows and grows. And there's absolutely nowhere that you can't access through food, you know, whether it's an ingredient or a technique, or an idea, or a cultural staple, it's all there to be used. And so and that's been somewhat liberating, I think, in the last few years, as this genre, as this field has gotten very crowded. Very crowded in the sense that everyone who's a Yelper, or a TripAdvisor reviewer, is suddenly, you know, not competition specifically, but certainly in a certain, in a, in a certain way, or an Instagrammer, or everyone has an opinion about food, and everyone can publish their opinions about food. And so we're always looking for new terrain, you know, going back to that idea of like deliver new information and find a beautiful way to package it. Like if you can still find those new territories within the world of food, then then it's always going to be there for you. And I feel like if I run up into a wall and suddenly you feel like you've exhausted it, which would be absurd because you can't. But that's when that's when I would start looking anxiously across the the other fields of writing and think, where am I going now? Did she ever get to read your writing when you grew up and became the baller? <laughs> wow. Um, I'm not sure if I've grown up or become a baller. 
even to this day. But I, as far as I know, no. You know, I'd been in touch with her a few times years later, and we definitely exchanged a lot of sort of, she was a big fan of the, the thoughtful handwritten note. This will be a little bit of an aside, but I think it's important. Um, you know, one of her first lessons in this workshop was, was exactly that, the thoughtful handwritten note. And this was back in 2002 when, you know, emails were, of course, were, were popular, but it wasn't the kind of world of communication that we're in today where there's WhatsApps and iMessages and even email feels overly formal oftentimes today. But she was just saying, listen, everybody out there, from the greatest writer who you admire to a chef to a TV star, like everybody likes to have feedback. Everybody likes to be contacted with just a thoughtful reflection on what they do. And so your first task as students in my class is to write five thoughtfully, thoughtful handwritten notes and send them out you know, by the end of the week to people that you admire. Wow. Um, and I did that. And I sent one to Alice Waters, who you know, was the founder and sort of personality and spirit behind Chez Pani, which is sort of this you know, redefining California culinary institution that really shaped the way that Americans ate throughout the 80s and 90s and still to this day. And, you know, I wrote her, you know, Mrs. Waters, you know, Miss Waters, thank you for all that you've done and, you know, crafted it very carefully and sent her probably, you know, 300 words um, of kind of handwritten gibberish because I write like a three-year-old, but... Fact. <laughs> total fact. But I managed to get it out and I got it. Monstrous handwriting. And, you know, much to Carolyn C's um, vision and her, her, her wisdom, I got a letter back from her saying... Thank you so much. This is really sweet and touching, and I can see that you're into food and into the writing world. Is there ever anything that, you know, that you think might be interesting for us or anything that I could do? Just let me know. Jesus, and that Christ. was it. And that was it. And I think out of the five that I sent, I probably had three or four of those responses. And these were all from people, or I assume, like Alice's. She she can't go around thinking that people don't respect her. Like she's a fucking legend. No, she's a total and, legend, and she knows she's a legend. But it's so crazy that. Like the, just to receive a handwritten note kind of cuts through the general like it, pats on the back. It really does. It really does. It certainly does in a way that an email or a DM does not. You know, even though you know, I'm sure if you get a DM from somebody who's a, a big fan of the trip, it's touching and you respond to them. But at, you're right. I mean, at, at Alice's level, you know, you you know kind of what the public opinion of you is, and so it takes something as intimate as a handwritten letter to really cut through all that noise. I, I mean, think more today than ever, like that right. is a tool for people who are trying to break in somewhere. It's just to be, to be that direct, but you know, not necessarily sending out um, any specific asks, but just making contact. Wow. Opening up some doors. I, I don't know if this, if this is, you know, that kind of podcast, but maybe we can just do a little assignment for our listeners, you know, we should do this, go and like, Everyone needs to send one handwritten letter to Nathan Thornburg and tell him why you appreciate this podcast. You know, that's not where I'm going, was <laughs> no. going with it, but I like it. I like this. All right. All right. One handwritten note and I will uh, uh, pretend I never got it, but feel really great privately. Um, no, I mean, no, fuck it. Readers, let's not make it five. We're not college kids. Everybody's busy. Ah, that was a put on hit. Sorry. Big I feel like I earned that with the, uh, <laughs> the little button. handwritten letter. Yeah, that's anecdote. right. I think one, you want one, one good handwritten letter to anybody who inspires you, anybody who moves you, um, you know, without anything else, without any expectations for anything in return, honestly. I mean, you should never do that for that reason alone. Okay, here is the homework section of the episode. 
It is COVID time, of course, and it feels like some old conventions are coming back in our massively slowed down world, like telephone calls. So why not write a letter? Just one. The Postal Service is still going here in the U.S. and in many countries, and this fucking virus can't survive in an envelope for that long. So, screw it. Write that handwritten letter. I will go first. I've got someone in mind who I think is the tits, and I'm just going to write him to tell him that. And if it works out, I'll tell you later who it is. Now it's your turn. Go get it. Write that letter. Send it off. Now back to the conversation. It's a tough freaking world to make it in as a writer. And it's really tough more and more these days when someone reaches, reaches out to you um, and says, hey, like, I'm really, you know, I, I really like what you guys do at RNK or I like, you know, your work. Um, and I'm thinking about going into it myself. What do you think? You know, my cousin reached out to me recently kind of saying, my, you know, my family's kind of against this. My parents don't really understand. They think it's a total, you know, waste of time and waste of money to go into this. But we well, you know your reputation in the Goulding family. <laughs> like, look at your dirtbag cousin, <laughs> all the time he's been wasting over there. Um, but what should I do? Is there really a future in this? And it's such a hard question to answer, you know, because... On one hand, of course, you always want someone to be like, just follow your passion, give it your all, you know, and you'll find a way, one way or another, you're not going to regret it, you know, you will regret not trying that thing that you really, really fucking love, um, but you won't try, you won't regret trying that thing you really fucking love and maybe coming up a little bit short. And I think that's probably a, a decent boilerplate answer, but the deeper answer is like, this industry is fucked and it's really hard to make it. And um, so much of making it is about, you know, finding the right contacts and making the right moves and sending the right handwritten letter or sending the right email. Like, it still really ultimately comes down to stuff like that. Yeah. I, my, my default, because we do get these, you know, uh, and in that same way that you're saying with Alice Water, like, you know, you can feel the spirit of it and you want to go back and, and write people back even, even if... Uh, it, it feels like unpaid labor in those right, terms, right. but I'm always just like, try not writing. <laughs> That's your response? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like, because it, it, I think increasingly in an industry that's super fucked, the, the only way you're going to make it is if you really have to do this, like, you know, so try not doing it and see if it's right. fucking you up, you know? Interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah. So if you leave it behind and you move forward with something else, but you find it gnawing away at you, then you got to go back to it. I mean, it's. I think it's also a, a maybe a milder version of the. Um, if you can do anything else, do that. <laughs> but right. it's sort of animated by the same market dynamics, you know. Yeah. Which yeah. is like, if you can, if you can, you know, love yourself uh, working as a lawyer. Uh, then you should definitely do that because, well, the fucking even law is hard these days. But, you know, one of these careers that will give you the other things that writing uh, won't, just, you know, stability and cash. Um, yeah, that's so, right. Um, so there, uh, there, there is the, the, the writing guru answer. I'm glad I didn't write you when I was young. <laughs> it is kind of a editor it could Thor be a disaster. Editor Thornburg, I'm a big fan of yours. Would you... <laughs> I got your letter. Try not writing. <laughs> Try, yeah, dude. <laughs> Try being real fucking quiet. I would be a line cook somewhere, which would be awesome in its own way. But yeah, that's what that's but, what would but, have happened. But no, I I, I am uh, I, very easy and comfortable in the knowledge that you would not have been a line cook. I mean, we that's a whole other conversation because you're a great fucking cook. 
but I don't see any, you know, version of the universe in which you're not writing or not feeling, or at least not feeling like super fucking bad if you're not writing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I guess it's a little bit like that, like, if you love them, let them go kind of thing. And if you really, truly love them, they'll come back to you or you'll come back to them or something. I think that there's, there's some real wisdom in that for sure. I should, maybe I should put like a time limit on it. Try not writing for, you know, not for well, like the next 50 years. But I mean, some of your, but some of your I say, some of your greatest wisdom is cloaked in the sort of darkness that sometimes is hard to cut through, <laughs> you know, like your realness. The evil message behind this. <laughs> no, you're, uh, you're ultimately very good at giving people those those other little grains of, of hope that they need for sure. But I think the, the initial one is always like jarring. Like, oh shit, don't do this. What? I, I just got back in touch with, uh, in my time in Germany, just speaking German with people and remembering just how brutal my German is. You know, not, it's just the words that I choose to use are so much less diplomatic and, you know, <laughs> than the Germans. And when I'm at, you know, when you're, making German rougher than it is, uh, you realize that that's just a, that's a part of your makeup. Um, put it on back for you. Well, all right. Feel free to ask me anything while you sip on the Corona. <laughs> I can't do it. I just can't do it. I, 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 Gar- it is... Gargoyle out of question. <laughs> Gargoyle over here. Mm-hmm. I gotta say, your Perone game is pretty strong. Really but is. but I think what what is true is that you are you you come at it in a much more natural way. This takes this 150 fucking percent concentration, <laughs> uh, getting me to that point. Um, what is what what is your writing uh, like now? What's your next big project? I get a lot of messages, um, sweet handwritten letters about what's the next um, next book in the series usually from people from specific countries who are kind of lobbying for, you know, the Korean version or the Vietnamese version or, God forbid, the English version. Oh, um, yeah. Um, and on one hand, that sounds incredible. Like, it, I think we originally conceived of the series as something that could just kind of go on and on and that, you know, one day people could have a, a bookshelf of these food-driven sort of deep dives into the world um, in the same way they have a shelf full of Lonely Planet books or something. Um, but even before even before Don't, Tony died, I think, you know, we had talked about this and I had felt like just from a writing standpoint, from a format standpoint, that like we, I'd done as much as I could with just the, the language um, and that I felt like even if maybe it wasn't apparent to everyone else, and maybe it is, but to me, I felt like there was a formula that had been developed and that at that point, every book from Italy on would just be kind of fulfilling that formula. Mm. And ultimately, like writing, no matter how long form or nuanced or eloquent, maybe everyone is working with the formula. Um, in at Time Magazine, you guys had your formula. At Men's Health, we certainly had our formula. And Definitely. Less so at, at R&K to our, our credit, maybe. Um, uh, or just because we're really lazy. No, that's, <laughs> couldn't, not, that's couldn't, not true. Couldn't develop a house style. But, that, um, but, you know, I felt like that formula, it can be really constricting. And so, you know, we had said, listen, even, you know, no matter what, we're just going to, Italy will kind of be the end of it. And maybe, maybe I'll have someone else go out there and do that great book about Vietnam. Have someone else do a really awesome book about Peru. Um, these great food cultures of the world. And, 
So, you know, as much as I wanted to write corn chili chocolate, the, you know, the deep dive into, into Mexico, um, and quite frankly, even the U.S. book, which I think would be awesome to write because it's surprising in some way that there would be, you know, that that would be a choice in these sort of great sort of, you know, totemic culinary cultures of the world that the U.S. would, would figure into it. But of course it would because there's so many awesome things happening there. Yeah. Um, but I just think from a, from a writing standpoint, I've, I've told myself, like, I just got to find something new. And I keep saying that that new thing is less and less and less about food. Yeah. But, you know, that old Michael Corleone line, you know, just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. So, I mean, also because of the way that you were talking about it, like food is, food is just the fucking door. You yeah. Can, you can have a thousand different kinds of rooms on the other side. It um, is without a doubt. Um, I gotta, I gotta say that my. I mean, it's almost difficult to say this out loud, but like, there's some version of my enthusiasm for food on like the micro level, on the meal by meal level, that has dissipated a little bit in recent years. Like, yeah, I'm still thinking like three or four meals ahead and thinking about how tonight's dinner might influence like Tuesday's lunch, and I could kind of program these things out in a way that like optimizes satisfaction. But like geeking out on individual restaurant meals or taking trips specifically to eat at one place or a handful mm. of places doesn't really get me going anymore. And it may just be a, a particular moment in time or maybe the fact that like the world is just filled with obnoxious gastronauts kind of blasting out their big meals across every social media space and it eventually kind of wears away at your own enthusiasm. But there's some combination there that is... I mean, do you still do that, like, uh, you know, that kind of um, foreplay thing, like looking at pictures of food to get you ready for dinner? I do do foreplay. This is true. My wife catches me all the time. She's like, are you looking at burgers again? I'm like, well, I told you I really wanted to go out tonight. Get that burger. Um, there, is, well, there is that version for sure. I mean, sure. That's, that's crazy. We're, we're now, like, I don't know, uh, uh, 200 yards from where... We first uh, met up with Tony uh, to shoot the series that you you co-hosted with him uh, yep. called Return with Catalonia. And one of the things that was kind of uh, kind of crazy that we realized through the production, the pre-production especially, was just taking options to Tony of what to eat and how to eat. And he basically said the same thing that you had said, you know, which is like, I just find myself like less you know, just kind of less into, he certainly didn't want to do a big meal. He no, didn't want no, to do no. an exceptional meal. Yeah. And listen, and we took us, and it was crazy because here we are and like, you have Anthony Bourdain coming to your adopted city and you want to take him to all the greatest things and people find out and they all are offering, hey, let me do this, let me do that. and Right. All the best chefs in the world wanted to They are. I him. mean, El Sierra de Candoroca, the number one ranked restaurant in that, that particular year. Um, and the Roca brothers are close friends and they're amazing humans. And they're like, listen, um, we can do anything. Even if Tony doesn't want like a 32 course meal. We can do kind of a simplified thing. We can hang out with my parents and do something a little bit more. And it was amazing what they were willing to do. And it was nothing against them. It was just Tony's, I think, general attitude towards food that just said, listen, I don't want to commit myself to sitting down at a table at that length with those levels of expectations. Um, maybe when I come back off camera, whatever, I would be happy to go do that because I have a lot of respect for what they do. Um, and, it, and listen, you know, Tony got there through... 19 years of 270 days of traveling and eating 
a year, you know, and so you know, I don't mean to paint myself as the jaded foodie or something like that. Um, but well, I, I mean, I think proportionally it has colonized, uh, you know, it has an equal amount of your brain and your a lot. Your life. It has, it has. I think it's, you know, I think that there was a day, especially early on, coming over to Europe and living in in Barcelona and going having access to these incredible restaurants where you know, every dish was sort of a, a revelation. It was a new technique that you were experiencing, you know, these new flavors, that whole, that whole beautiful picture of fine dining when it's really at its best, you know, just felt like a brand new world that you're discovering. And it's harder and harder and harder to find new things in that way. So, if, you know, if it's the old drug metaphor, like it's harder to hit that high. Yeah. It is. Um, but but the, this is, to continue that metaphor... You were like now not the user. You're out there slinging, right? I mean, yeah, there's some version of that for sure. Because you have brought me into that world. You've brought all of the readers of these books into you know, so you can you can step back and start focusing on your beautiful baby. Start you know thinking about these other mental uh, exercises and new kinds of writing. And then there are literally people walking around with your books uh, on all corners of the earth, like trying to eat like you and do that. And that's a, that's a, that's a hell of a thing, man. Oh man. Well, to hear you say it like that sounds extremely beautiful. Um, that means a lot to me. Um, and that it really does. It means everything to, 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 to come across somebody in a city that has come there because they read something. That's, that's the whole game, you know, yeah. not because I, you know, we we set out to tell people exactly where to eat and what to eat when they're there. That's not what we do at RNK. But we try to set the table for an experience, you know, to let them, as Tony would say, stumble into an experience, but give them the context that it takes to really fully appreciate it from many different levels. Um, you know, and I think that, you know, getting back to the original question of what's next, like what's next is going to be just the next version of that, you know, and I have some ideas of what that might be, but not clear enough to elucidate here amidst doorbells and barone drinking but that must be the alarm clock thank you Matt Goulding alright man this was amazing thanks Nate always lovely The Trip from Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me Nathan Thornburg Alexa Van Sickle is our producer theme music by Dan the Automator episode illustration by Daisy Deese sound mastering and composing by Ricardo Gutierrez Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. Have a great summer, you beautiful bastards. New episodes of The Trip after Labor Day. We will meet you there. <laughs>